This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. If we're going to make racial justice around in the future in the UK, then we're going to have to process our history and at least acknowledge and understand the journeys that we've had to this point if we're going to be able to take the next step of the journey together. This week, my guest is Dennis Marcus, the executive director of Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights UK, an educational charity that works to inspire people, especially children, to make human rights local, a reality every day, and proactive rather than reactive. Dennis shares how he has known about Ubuntu from when he was young, acknowledging the mutuality of existence and how he has used it to inspire his work. We also speak about the project he's currently focused on, The World Reimagined, a groundbreaking national art education project to transform how we understand the transatlantic slave trade and its impact on all of us. Here's our conversation. Dennis Marcus, welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. I'm very excited to be speaking with you today. Hi, delighted to be speaking with you. As always, a joy. Well, I'm going to jump right in. And the first question I'd love to ask is about our resumes and how they're not a full explanation of who we are as a person. And so because of that, I'm wondering, what would you say is missing from your resume that people should know about you? Uh, well, I knew this was coming up because as a dedicated Everyday Ubuntu listener, um, I, really, <laughs> uh, I really like this question. Um, but I've got to say, for me, it's a real challenge because it's been an awfully long time since I've written a resume. Uh, you know, oh, I'm jealous. Uh, <laughs> Well, I don't know where I'd begin, to be honest. So, um, you know, we set up our own company in 2014, uh, Laura, my wife and I. Um, and since then, you know, we haven't really gone, you know, gone out to sort of see where we've, we, we've created, we've worked with partners on, on projects. Um, you know, we've been asked to do different projects and so on. So uh, there, there isn't sort of a defined career path there, you know, you know, it, it, and, and I think maybe that is sort of uh, what my journey sort of hopefully says about me, which is that it's not really about the title. Um, it's about the work and the purpose and, and, and doing things that we feel are exciting and important uh, and that give us energy. And I don't want to give the impression that I'm like a cat chasing after a piece of fluff that's just appeared and, you know, I'm off after that. And that's the latest, most exciting thing. Um, but really, you know, we've had the great privilege of working with uh, incredible people um, and on, you know, things that have made a difference. and. That's sort of what we look for, meaning and purpose. And, and if I were to write my resume, I hope that something that would be captured, maybe. Okay. Well, then speaking of meaning and purpose, what would you say is your purpose work? You know, what, are, what is the work that it, you wake up for and excites you every day? So uh, we've got, uh, I'm working on two really uh, meaningful projects at the moment um, and, and organizations at the moment. One is Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights UK and the other is The World We Imagined. But to go deeper in terms of the, you know, the theory of change and approach I bring to, uh, bring to those organizations, which I guess is where your question is, um, is, you know, you, you know that I'm half South African, um, uh, half German, um, British citizen. So a, a you know, uh, an intriguing mix. Um, <laughs> but I've always been very, uh, very connected to the idea of Ubuntu, um, uh, as obviously you are. Um, and. I've always, you know, used that definition of I am who I am because of who we all are. And, you know, that mutuality of existence, that interconnectedness. And uh, having been a political geek who uh, my parents uh, and my sister always saw, you know, lying on the lounge floor reading um, big political biographies growing up, 
um, uh, uh, and, 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 and truly geeking out. I always combine that, pardon me, with uh, the words of Robert F. Kennedy. Uh, and mm. this was even before I got my current job, so I should say uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not just uh, I'm totally indoctrinated. Uh, is the idea of, uh, and Bobby Kennedy went to South Africa in 1966 and he spoke to a group of students and he said, every time uh, a person stands up for an ideal uh, or acts to improve the lot of others or strikes out against injustice, they send forth a tiny ripple of hope. And all of those ripples coming together from a million different centers of energy and daring can create a current that can overcome the mightiest walls of oppression and resistance. So for me, I've always combined that idea of this ever expanding uh, sort of web um, of interconnectivity and mutuality of existence. And I've always thought, you know, every action you take, yes, Bobby Kennedy spoke of hope, but actually every action you take can send a ripple of some sort. And sometimes, you know, uh, the, the absence of an action is also a decision. Uh, so that's sort of where I've become really conscious of how intentional people become and how people think about their impact on the world and the impact on others and how we are connected and why it's important that we're connected. And so that's sort of been, you know, the driving sort of like way of thinking about the world uh, that's driven my work, which is how can I um, support, help people uh, figure out how, how they want to impact our, sort of our shared Ubuntu uh, and, and make the biggest impact possible. And that's sort of the purpose uh, I bring to it. I love that. And also this is, I used to hate when people would ask this question, but do you have a favorite politician? Do I have a favorite politician? Um, <laughs> Dead or alive? You know what? I don't. I, I have huge ad admiration for lots of different politicians. I've, I've worked with a lot of politicians and, mm -hmm. you know, you see such different strengths and I don't think there's any such thing as a perfect politician. You know, um, they are right. all uh, people of um, that their moment, uh, their context, uh, and they bring different strengths, uh, you know, and sometimes also different weaknesses, you know, the, uh, to those roles and recognizing just how broad the different phases of a politician's role are. And the politician's role is very different depending on who they are. You know, being, being a freedom fighter as a politician is very different from being a leader in government. Uh, it requires, you know, it, it can require different skills. Um, you know, being in opposition and being effective and, and, you know, causing a change in how people understand the world can be different to, um, you know, uh, administering a government agenda. So I don't really have a particular, um, uh, you know, one politician that I would, that I would sort of point to, but, you know, that, that there are people of extraordinary gifts, um, uh, and, you know, you've got to admire, uh, all of them. I think, you know, what I've seen from people I've had the fortune of working with, uh, and the, uh, and, and, and I think when, what I really admire about politicians is, is when they've had the chance or taken the chance or made the chance themselves to, to think really deeply about what society should create for people. And what does that look like in action? Mm -hmm. So, you know, how do, how do we go beyond, you know, I believe in fairness to what does fairness look like? What, do, what does it demand of us to do? How do we move beyond um, espousing values to the deed, to the action, um, and, and being able to articulate that path. And I think those are uh, the politicians that very often, um, you know, stay true. And I think that's one of the things that really marks out that generation of anti-apartheid leaders, um, you know, uh, of, of Mandela and Sisulu and Tutu. Um, the, the depth of thinking and conviction, you know, allowed them, I think, you know, is, is a key part to their story of resilience. Yeah. Be part of their story of achieving their outcome.
so that's something that I think I deeply admire. And I think it's usually and very often why those politicians are particularly successful or why they break through. And I know that, you know, you mentioned working with politicians and that you sort of have written speeches for some. Could you speak about your speech writing? I'm like always very interested in it. A, for I know that the power of people's stories is important to you. But how do you like write speeches for politicians that really reflect them and also their message? Well, I think, you know, one of the great privileges of being a speechwriter is that you get to spend quite a lot of time with people and you get to know them. And, uh, you know, I think um, if the relationship is working really well, then you spend time and you have the opportunity to, to understand how they form their beliefs, where, they, you know, where, where their theory of change, where their thinking, where their way of looking at the world comes from. And I think, you know, that's uh, like fundamental to my approach to speechwriting and my approach to everything else, which is, you know, I very much believe that our reality is created by the decisions we make, uh, we take every day mm -hmm. uh, in every single part of our lives. And ultimately, those decisions are shaped by our mindsets and attitudes, by what we understand about who we are, how we came to be here, about the world around us. And so, you know, that works in two ways. In order for me to support somebody in, 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 in writing a speech and developing a speech, I've got to understand that about them. And then we've also got to figure out, you know, if there is an idea and a message that they want to share with an audience, how do we think about not only uh, what the, um, how the audience views the world, um, you know, how can we develop that further so that we can inspire them to action? I believe very much that speeches are about action. Uh, what, is, what are people going to do differently tomorrow because we spoke today? How can we shape the way that they're thinking about the world around them and what's possible for them? Uh, so that they can yeah. then go and take action. Um, and, you know, that's where, uh, you know, t a TED talk that changed my life, Simon Sinek, Start <laughs> With Why. You know, the idea that everything should begin with, you know, why is something important? Why is it urgent? Why, you know, how can we act? Um, and, you know, I think what's easy for us very often is to describe the what, as Simon Sinek would describe it, what's close to us, what should we do? But actually the motivating force is the why. It's understanding what it is, why it's important, why it's urgent, and what can we can do about it. Uh, so that's sort of the, the, the approach I brought to, you know, uh, I brought to work with feature writing, but that's also, you know, the approach to strategy. It's the approach mm -hmm. to developing programs and events, um, because it's about storytelling. Uh, and it's about then through that storytelling, hopefully, um, uh, showing people possibilities about how they can, uh, take action, make a difference, have impact. Have you ever been asked to write for someone and just sort of known that either, I don't know, their like persona or personality didn't match up with your values and you just had to say no? I've never been put in that position, actually. Uh, That's good. I think because the conversations almost start earlier, mm. uh, you know, and, and um, so uh, there are points, um, you know, when... Uh, when you're truly in sync with a person that you're writing for and you've worked with them long enough, mm -hmm. um, where, uh, to be honest, you, you can't quite tell where their writing begins and your writing begins. And, and, <laughs> and you know, that, that's when, as a speechwriter, I think, um, uh, uh, you've reached sort of the peak, which is that you're able to, you know, hopefully articulate stories as they would wish to. Yeah, I like that. 
Um, so you mentioned that you, you know, you're at Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights UK and mm -hmm. you're the exec director. Yeah. I'm wondering what you learned from that role, because I know that you work with children a lot. And so I'm wondering what you've learned from the role and from the children and the kids that you work with in that position. So with Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights UK, so we're, um, we're affiliated to the US organization, which is run by the human rights activist, Kerry Kennedy. And you know, they've been running an education program uh, all over the world for years, um, incredibly successfully. And you know, one of the things that we were really looking to do when we brought to the UK is, is to speak to the local context. And in the UK, human rights have got a really significant challenge, which is that for a lot of people, it feels really remote. Uh, yeah. It feels sort of distant from their lives because the traditional sort of narrative around it, um, you know, has been, uh, you know, human rights is about other people in other places who are suffering. Um, or, you know, in the 2000s, a lot of the you know, public human rights discourse um, was around human rights and stopping us from deporting terrorists. Um, uh, so, so, you know, or human rights, because obviously, you know, the, uh, the general understanding of human rights from a legal perspective, it's about the relationship between the individual and the state and powerful organizations is that it puts it very much into the preserve of the legal world. Right. And if you're fortunate, then hopefully that's got nothing to do with you. Um, uh, so in, in many ways, you know, the question for us was how can we make it relevant and local? I think one of the key things that we've learned over, you know, the last three years of working is that part of it again is about how people understand their connection and, um, uh, to human rights and the narrative of, of human rights. So what I mean by that is, you know, you'll often hear about, you know, everybody has human rights, they are then abused, and then we have to respond. It's a, it's a reactive relationship, it's a negative relationship where, um, you know, you know, it is about response to abuse, which in a way puts the focus on abuse. You know, mm -hmm. it, it makes the abuse the focus of the conversation and actually locates often the power um, of, you know, of somebody taking away your rights, as people often say. Um, uh, rather than with you. And, you know, what we found is that that kind of narrative doesn't account for systemic outcomes. It doesn't account for systemic racism or misogyny, uh, because we're, because we understand single acts much better than we do understand, um, and, and can process systemic outcomes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the things that we've taken into, uh, in, into our work with schools is a slightly adapted narrative. And this is not to say that responding to human rights abuse isn't vitally important. Of course it is but it's part of the picture um, rather than the whole picture. And so what we say is you know, everybody has human rights and humanity has come together to, to make that declaration. But just because we say so, it doesn't automatically make it a reality. Mm. You, know, you, you say you have the right to education, it doesn't, you know, up top to school. Uh, that's not how it works. It takes decisions and actions every single day to make human rights a reality. And what's really important about that is it actually puts the onus on us to live up to those ideals and make them a reality, whether it is in our families, in our communities, uh, in business, in government. And so it puts the onus on you. Part of that might be responding to human rights abuse, but gives you the opportunity every day, you know, whether it's simply how you treat somebody with dignity, um, to act in a way that can make human rights a reality. And we found, and, and that's obviously connected from the Robert F. Kennedy human rights point of view with that quote of every time uh, you stand up for an ideal or strike out against injustice, you send forth a ripple of hope. It's about mm -hmm. every single one of your actions. And, you know, if, if I can just give that quick example of privacy, let's say, uh, you know, government has got regulation, um, responsibilities and 
designing citizen services. They've also, uh, business has got compliance and GDPR, um, but they also <laughs> have the opportunity to design um, privacy as a product feature, right? as we're seeing in lots of different products at the moment. Um, but then if you think about family life, uh, you know, if I've taken an unbelievably beautiful photo of, of my sons, should I be putting that on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter? Right. Um, and, uh, you know, does that make their right to privacy a reality or not? Now, there's no yes or no answer to that, but it's about becoming conscious of the questions. You know, if uh, my son um, if sees a phone lying on the table, what does he do? Does he look through it um, or does he give it back without looking at it? And the reason that that's important, that's not like traditionally human rights uh, <laughs> sort of discourse or thought of that that way, right? But it's about, um, you've got to build a muscle memory, as uh, Kerry Kennedy often says, you've got to build a muscle memory of matching ideals to action. So that, mm -hmm. you know, if we know anything from all the leaders that we've seen around the world, uh, you know, it is that you don't suddenly get power and then learn how to make, to, you know, turn ideals into action. Absolutely That's something not. that you've been practicing in your day-to-day, -day, every single day. Um, because, you know, then when you have power or when you're tested, you're more likely to do it. And so that context, I think, is important because that's, that's sort of like the, the narrative and the approach we've taken to school. And the way it's been picked up and students are connected to human rights and are able to articulate it at its essence is, um, is incredible, it's inspiring. And, you know, uh, they recognize and step into their power to create change and, you know, connecting them to uh, the work of human rights over the last 70 years that's seen so much progress around the world because people have made decisions and taken actions, including to make law. Um, uh, it is it, incredibly powerful because it, it says it's not necessarily up to individuals independently, but we are working in this movement together and we are connected in whatever contribution we can make. That was a very long answer to your question, sorry. No, no, children are the future, you know? I mean, I spoke to some of them and they were very, very smart and impressive. Yeah, and you know, I think uh, that they challenge and they question and uh, you know, their curiosity uh, and you know, there is a, there is a demand for change. There is a hunger. Um, because obviously, you know, uh, students are very conscious, you know, it is their future, it is their world as well. Um, and, you know, at, at the Ripple Hope Festival that we're hosting in Manchester in September, we have a schools day and, you know, we've got poetry created and, and films created by those schools. And it's really on, like, it's, it's outstanding work. And I think, um, young people's ability to express uh, what the world could and should look like um, is very important to remind us of the urgency and our responsibility if we have the privilege of, of, of being able to make decisions that can influence that, whether it's in the corporate world, government, um, should, should, should drive us mm -hmm. forward. And I know that you're also working on something called The World Reimagined, so I'm wondering if you could share that with my listeners who may not know about it. Sure. Uh, so The World Reimagined um, is a new national uh, art education project here in the UK uh, that is about uh, transforming our understanding of the transatlantic slave trade uh, and its impact on all of us and slavery on all of us. And uh, the way that this came about um, was uh, in 2018, uh, on the centenary of Mandela's birthday, uh, we were hosting an event for Andrew Marangeni, who um, you obviously know, but in case your listeners don't, 
um, uh, was on trial in prison with Mandela and just a wonderful, wonderful human being. And I, I was talking with my co-founder, Michelle Gale, about how South Africa has processed history um, and how important, you know, those conversations around truth and reconciliation uh, have been to, you know, at least securing some progress towards making racial justice a reality. And that's imperfect progress, progress but, you know, that, that conversation and having that consciously and intentionally is really important. Um, similarly, you know, I'm half German. Uh, that Germany has had to do some work, right? Multiple times yeah. in the last 10 years. And they have tried to do that. Again, imperfectly. Again, it's not, you know, it's not, it's not a straight line. Um, but I think both of the societies have shown how important it is to process history. And then when, you know, we move to the UK and we don't quite have that open dialogue. Uh, you know, I went through the English school system and really all I heard about the transatlantic slave trade was that William Wilberforce was the white guy who ended it um and that's not You're like what is he ending if we're not talking about <laughs> what it was you know, and, <laughs> you know and 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 that's exactly it and so you know we talked about how if we're gonna uh michelle who you know who obviously comes at it from a position of having been a public figure as an actor and singer um in the uk you know since the 90s and has experienced you know all the way from community activism all the way to how you treat it you know uh in, in the media and, you know, just the complexities of racial justice in the UK. We talked about, you know, if we're going to make racial justice a reality in the future in the UK, then we're going to have to process our history and at least acknowledge and understand the journeys that we've had to this point, if we're going to be able to take the next step of the journey together uh, uh, in, a, in a much more just way, in a way that speaks to dignity and acknowledgement. And so, you know, we talked about how do we take that out to um, to people who un, haven't yet had the opportunity to learn about it because it wasn't part of the education system. And we came across uh, sculpture trails. They, there was a project called Be in the City in Manchester, which they did after Manchester Arena bombing, which was um, about celebrating the many different dimensions of Manchester. And there were 100 sculptures, um, all uniquely, individually created by, um, uh, painted by artists to bring to life different dimensions of Manchester. And we thought, isn't this an amazing proven public engagement tool? And we can literally take people on a journey of discovery, uh, you know, um, through different cities in the UK to learn about the transatlantic slave trade, but also to go before that. You know, the story starts much earlier in, in Mother Africa, mm. right? But, you know, for artists to bring to life different themes, like the reality of being enslaved from capture to voyage to life in different settings, all the way through to being much, you know, to, to, to honoring and celebrating uh, those who resisted and their descendants who achieved incredible things through Still We Rise to the theme of reimagine the future. So now that we've walked this journey of discovery together, what is the future we can create together now that we see each other and, and, and before each yeah. other acknowledgement? And uh, so it, it started off as, oh, could we do the sculpture trail in London? <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing? Um, you know, we're now confirmed in seven cities across the UK taking place next August to October. We've brought together incredible people like our founding artist, Ninka Shonibare, uh, who has designed the base sculpture that these trails will be based on. Um, you know, we've got people like the cast of West End Hamilton involved in creating our education program that will see, you know, hundreds of schools across the country create their own globes and their own poetic expression. Uh, so, and, you know, we've got community coordinators in the different cities because we're uh, supporting and, and helping organizations in those cities who are doing the amazing work of making racial justice reality host their own events. So that's through the trails, 
essentially what we are is a platform, a gateway for people to engage and learn uh, about um, racial justice and, uh, and, and its history. And then as they go, I want to step into this, we can say, look at these amazing organizations doing this work, please support them. So that through this program, we build understanding, but we also build the community, the family uh, of support for racial justice work across the country. Um, and there was, and you know, we, we've been working on this for a year before um, George Floyd was uh, uh, murdered. We brought together, you know, um, an incredible group of people. Um, uh, you know, Rose Hudson Wilson, Bishop of Dover, um, our patron, Gillian Joseph, Ruth Big Boone, and Lee Lawrence. Like, <laughs> I can list our entire board. They're all incredible people in very different ways. <laughs> um, you know, but, but but amazing leaders. And from that foundation, you know. When people want to take action after George Floyd was murdered, and the response has been overwhelming, and so um, it, it, it sounds weird to, stra- uh, to say it, because of course the subject matter of the transatlantic slave trade uh, and, and, and much of the injustice that we talk about is very difficult, but the desire of people to get involved from very unexpected quarters in some senses uh, has been very joyful and inspiring. I mean, I think it's important because I know that. I think I read Rennie Edo Lodge's book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. And after I read it, you know, I was explaining to friends in the U.S. how in the U.K. they paid slave owners for their losses when slavery ended. And Mm -hmm. it's just like bawling my mind. And then when I would bring it up to someone in the U.K., people just didn't know about it in the U.K. And so I think this is a very important project um, to have. and, And I'm excited about it. I know that you're really excited about it, too. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's, uh, well, a, a mind-boggling thing is that that debt um, uh, that, that, that was paid as part of emancipation and abolition um, was only paid off in 2015. Uh, so, yeah. so, you know, it is, it is so incredibly recent and it is so incredibly connected. And I think, you know, one of the things that we really want to um, help people understand is how, you know, Conversations around history often sort of like said, oh, well, that's the past. Like, well, it's actually deeply connected to where we are now and who we are now, what this country is now. And that's not to say, like, this is not about finger pointing. It's not about blame. It is about understanding and recognizing that acknowledging this history isn't uh, a lack of confidence in Britain. It is saying that if we acknowledge this and make racial justice a reality in the future, that is the best we can be. And that's worthy of us open mm-hmm. dialogue and, and inviting people into that conversation who haven't had the opportunity to, to, to take part before. And, you know, there's a great Maya Angelou quote uh, uh, that, that we hold dear, which is, you know, when you know better, you've got to do better. But we've got to have the chance, yeah. we've got to have the chance and know better first. And, you know, so let's, you know, we, we want to offer that opportunity to everybody uh, to get involved, to learn and, and, and to add their voice uh, to that effort. Yeah, and you know, ignoring history doesn't allow anyone to sort of know better. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, a lot of the subject matter is is difficult to engage with. And as someone who is South African and German, you your countries have histories that are also difficult to engage with. Um, so I wonder what has sort of sustained you in difficult moments. I think, well, first of all, I've got to put the South African bit into context. Um, uh, and, and, and how we're connected, you know, I, I think um, 
sorry to do the name dropping, uh, but you know, <laughs> I, I, as you know, my granddad was um, the accountant for the law firm of Man Mandela and Tambo mm -hmm. uh, back in the 50s uh, and 60s. And so I had the great privilege um, in the 90s of meeting all the people um, and, and all of these great leaders. And I don't think um, you can walk away from conversations uh, with people like Amit Khafrad and Dennis Goldberg uh, and Andrew Mangeni uh, and Joel Joffe and um, George Bieber and you know all the people I've had the real privilege to meet and not say I've got to do my part um, and uh, you know I'm and, 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 I, and I think that sense of mission that sense of purpose that inspiration they've always given me and, and you know you know what knowing the person behind the myth is like. Um, you know, get, get getting to know the person, the humor, the strength, um, as well as, you know, in, in some cases, you know, the private suffering um, uh, of, of what people yeah. went through um, is, is deeply moving. And uh, what's amazing is in, in, in when you see that humanity close up uh, and, and you can see how, how they made it, um, I think it fortifies you when it gets challenging. Doesn't mean I don't get stressed. Doesn't mean I don't feel that my to-do list is chasing right. me down the road with a pitchfork right now. Um, but planning it, a festival. Planning a festival in a pandemic yeah. is a questionable uh, 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 life choice. <laughs> but you know what? The festival is coming together wonderfully, so we're going to keep going. Um, uh, but yeah, certainly, you know, it, it, it puts it into context. Um, it fires you up. And, uh, you know, I think that's where the great... Um, joy and of, of doing work of meaning is that when you see you make a difference quite frankly it gives much more to you than it does yeah you know, in, 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 in terms of energy and, and and quite frankly refilling your purpose and i may know the answer to this next one but who are some of the people who have inspired you <laughs> ah uh well look i mean so many people it's funny because you start a list and then you just keep talking, um, which might be the defining uh, uh, <laughs> uh, thread of this podcast, I'm sorry, um, is, you know, I always, always, always start with Andrew Mangeni, um, uh, just because he was such a funny, charming, strong, principled, uh, unrelenting person, um, you know, and uh and 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 you know the time that i got to know him i always be good treasure and you know uh with his family um uh i didn't get to didn't, didn't get to know amicatharalate for example as, as well um but you know uh, kathy and dennis goldberg i mean uh these are people who in their 80s were arguing for their ideals and you know that like you can imagine what it was like when they were in their 20s you know because they had you know they they lost yeah. none of that fierceness um, uh, and, and they brought it to life in such amazingly different ways. And I think what they really showed me, uh, was that there, there, there is no one way. There is no, this is the way you have to take action. This is the way you have to behave as a leader. Um, you know, it comes in many different shapes. You have to find your path. And I think that's, you know, that's, I think one of the lessons of the, of the anti-apartheid movement is that there were so many people involved. Yes, there is so much, um, focus on the icon but as you know there are so many different people at every level of society who contributed so much whether it was seen or not seen or you know acknowledged or not acknowledged um uh and you know when you understand that 
it, it, it's very empowering because you're not trying to copy somebody else. It allows you to step into this is what I can do and that self-awareness and this is what I hope to do um, uh, and, and also value other people in, 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 uh, in saying we can work together uh, to make this thing, whatever that thing is, to be happy. Yeah. And <laughs> funny enough that you say copy other people and self-awareness. Um, in June, you know, as as you obviously know, I spoke to some of the kids that you work with and I did it alongside my mom, who is a great orator, like my grandfather. And so I'm sure people aren't surprised to know that I always compare myself to them. This is something that I have always done and who knows when I'll stop. Um, but after the speech, you, you sent me some advice that really connected to conversations I'd been having with people and it really stuck with me. And I've, you know, I've saved that message and I wonder if you could sort of share it and shine a light on it because I'm sure there are other people who do the same thing as me and it, I really appreciate it and I think that it'd be helpful if you you know in case there's someone out there that is feeling the same way as me if you could sort of share what you said to me oh boy um so essentially <laughs> what I tried to say uh, uh was what was I guess what I what I just spoke about which is um especially when it comes to public speaking people think that there is one way to do it and one way has uh, and, and, and there's one way of having power. Um, and, you know, uh, like I can sort of appreciate that. I'm like, you know, when it comes to public speaking, I'm a bit of a show pony. I get a lot of energy from it. Um, uh, and, uh, and, but uh, I may not connect with the audience in the way that other people may connect with the audience because audiences are rich and textured and different, as different as the people who speak. Um, and so what mm. people really truly connect to are... Uh, uh, I, I believe ideas and powers of stories and recognizing they come from an authentic place. Uh, you know, and, and, and there are many different ways of performing or delivering that message. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't, you know, it, it, it doesn't have to be, um, the great orator. It can be somebody who invites you into their space. Um, you know, I think that's something that you do, uh, so powerfully, and, and, and I think that's something that should be recognized as a really powerful form of communication. Um, it's no less persuasive, it's no less inspiring. It's just, you know, it, it is different. Um, and, you know, uh, I'm, while I'm sure it appeals to everybody, the different people are going to respond to things in different ways. Uh, there, there, there's no one way of doing it. And so, uh, I guess, for people listening, it's, if you don't feel confident um, or, you know, around um, the persona and, and, and sometimes it's about having attention on you, um, you know, what is the story that you're telling? You believe in the story. It's worth sharing. So share it. Yeah. No, I really do appreciate it. So thank you again for saying that. And then I'd love to know, what is your greatest fear for humanity? Not going to lie. The, uh, I, you know, uh, I think one of the great changes when I had, when I had kids was that you, you become much more long-term in thinking. Um, uh, because I think, you know, our day-to-day -day society, um, focuses you very much on, right, what, I, what have I got to do today? What does tomorrow look like? You know, it, it focuses on the immediate and short term and, and a lot of incentives. And, and, and I think, and I thought, uh, previously that, you know, I, I, I had a relatively good long-term view, but actually, uh, you know, when I think about, um, well, my boys are, you know, three and one currently method acting as a, 
as a T-Rex and a pterodactyl, respectively. Um, you know, <laughs> because they're that age, I'm kind of thinking, you know, what does their life look like in 35 years, in 50 years, uh, in 70 years? And that certainly has put much greater urgency um, uh, around the climate crisis for me, um, of something that I yeah. used to think was important, but didn't necessarily act on because I had a lot of in, in, in different social impact spaces. Um, but that's become much more uh, urgent um, and, and, and present for me because you can see it playing out disastrously potentially um, in their mm-hmm. life, you know, in our lifetimes, but you know, in their lifetimes. And I think uh, uh, that's the greatest existential fear. Because you know, if you think about putting it together with human rights, um, climate, the climate crisis, um, endangers, limits, um, stops your ability to make human rights a reality. Uh, you know, and, and that's what the cross human. So if we don't act on that, then uh, uh, with sufficient speed, um, then uh, then we're in trouble. Yeah, I remember almost 10, 11 years ago, we did this campaign with the elders and it was like the elders and their grandkids about climate change mm-hmm. 10 years ago. And they're like, so what do you guys want us to do? And we're like, well, you're the ones that created this problem. So I don't know, but it'd be nice if you'd help us. Um, and you know, it's a decade later and nothing's getting better. Uh, that's right. (laughs) I wish I had a response to that, which which was to say it is getting better. Um, I mean, I think, you know, again, we're seeing people understand that in a very different way. Um, it is, uh, shocking, but unsurprising or yeah, I think it's that way around rather than surprising, not shocking, you know, how people have connected to the floods in Germany. Um, I think in a very visceral way um to local impact here and and, and mm. i think you know um it's always one of those things um that the closer to closer to home it is and people um i think often see that urgency and feel that urgency much more deeply um so hopefully uh we're we're we're, we're a positive tipping point um rather than negative tipping point but we but, but we are at that tipping point and yeah we, and, and we it's not we'll see where it goes we have to act we have sure to it goes in the right way yeah you're probably right that we are it's getting better in the fact that we understand and we have more studies but maybe i'm biased at looking at from the u.s perspective where there you know there's kind of an entire political party that still doesn't believe in it so that's what i mean like it's not getting better like if we still have people literally denying this is coming and happening at this moment absolutely i mean one would say that on one hand it's ever harder to deny but at the same time entrenched media systems also make it harder for people to access that information uh, in a way as we exist, you know, mm. can exist in narrative and media silos. So it's a, um, it's a real challenge. Uh, and I think, you know, the question of global political leadership um, is a really difficult one. Uh, you know, it's been an intense five, 10 years of change on how uh, <laughs> you know, the global international political system functions is my understated way of saying that. Um, uh, without pointing fingers at particular people. Um, and, you know, so I think, uh, you know, what happens in Glasgow this year is going to be really important um, because realistically, of course, everybody can take action and should take action and must take action. Uh, but mm-hmm. unless we understand that systems have to change, incentives of systems have to change, um, then, then we're not really addressing root causes. And what is your greatest hope for humanity? people um Mm. you know i think uh people's ability to to act people's 
um, ability uh, and capacity for compassion and empathy, um, for understanding and acknowledgement, um, uh, is extraordinary. And I think, you know, one of the things is that too often when we've secured progress, we take, you know, we can take that progress for granted. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and whether you voted uh, to leave or to remain, you know, one can say that, you know, uh, EU membership was secured and then we didn't work to create a culture that supported the EU. And if you don't create a culture to support those different ideals or the different things of progress, then you will lose those things. We're seeing that with human rights around the world. Um, and so I think one of the pieces is really uh, how do we, through our campaigning work, through our activism work, create cultural spaces um, where we build communities of support. Uh, because there are going to be forces, um, political forces, uh, who want to take us back to working for um, particular interests, um, you know, which we're seeing very strongly, um, you know, uh, leading to a very you know, a great rise in authoritarianism across the world. Yeah. So there are always going to be those forces. But I do believe in the power of people to come together uh, and and acknowledge each other and see each other uh, and, and, and create a better future together and to act. That was a very Ubuntu answer there at the end. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to be on brand for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, you do it well. You do it well. Thanks. Um, Dennis, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. My first time ever talking about myself uh, in this way and uh, uh, a, a, a joy uh, that it could be you. Well, if you need any tips on how to listen to an episode of yourself speaking about yourself, I can I can send them your way. I still cringe when I hear myself, so. Yeah, I'm not going to go into that. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you. It was lovely to speak with you. And you. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today. And don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at mungi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu. Thank you so much for listening to a podcast by The Brand is Female. I'm Ava Hartling, and this episode was produced by our team. Sound engineering by Isabel Morris. Research and production support, Claire Miglionico. Marketing and digital growth, Kayla Gillis. And partnerships, Natalie Hope. Natalie Hope.